Last time I spoke, we were in Daniel 9, among other places, and we started into the 70 weeks prophecy. I deferred from a specific uh, dissection of that prophecy and went to show in various other places that indeed Jerusalem has to be rebuilt and that it is talking apparently of a different Jerusalem than that one in the Middle East. It is still there. There's nothing there that needs, in that sense, rebuilt at the moment. The wall is up. The city is there. And yet at the end time, this is something that talks about rebuilding Jerusalem. So we saw in Zechariah 12 that it has to be reestablished in its own place. I went through this in 2003 at the feast, and at that time, the only Jerusalem I could see that needed restored, apart from that in the Middle East, would be the towns without walls, which Zechariah 2 calls Jerusalem. So God's people would be there, and those villages would then be a type of or a part of what God would consider Jerusalem at the end. However, <clears throat> we have since come across new knowledge, which may change that. I say new knowledge. Uh, it's, it appears to be so. It may prove not to be so, but let's proceed today with the idea that the original Jerusalem was indeed in the southwestern United States. And it was also the cradle of civilization and the place of the Garden of Eden originally. And man migrated from this promised land over to Europe and other places. So instead of the migration coming from the Middle East to here, it started here in this beautiful, lovely land of promise as opposed to that stinking desert over there. Uh, which someone said, if that's the promised land, I think I'll pass. Uh, and, I, and I agree with that emotion. <laughs> so I'm not saying that this is for sure, but I want us to look at some scriptures today with that background, and I think that we can understand, finally, if this uh, supposition that I'm making be true we can finally understand the 70 weeks prophecy. Now this is a prophecy that has been pushed and pulled back and forth for centuries by various scholars and Protestant commentators. The Church of God made a, took a crack at it too, but from today's perspective, I don't believe there's any way that Herbert Armstrong could have understood the 70 weeks prophecy. I don't believe there's any way until we have come to our current possible understanding that we could understand it. I believe that today we can probably make sense of it, not part of it, but perhaps all of it. There have been all kinds of theories about this applying to Christ, and indeed I will not disallow that from the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, who uh, defiled the sanctuary until the time Christ actually came to the earth, could not have been a partial fulfillment of that. But remember that Daniel is an end-time book. 
Remember that God told Daniel, seal up the book until the time of the end. So, God is saying, in no uncertain terms, no one can understand this book until the end time. So those hundreds of years ago who applied it only to Christ in his first coming were missing the boat and could not have understood it. Maybe they could have understood a partial early fulfillment, but there's no way they could have understood the full meaning of this uh, passage or of the book of Daniel either, for that matter. God sealed it until the end. So anybody that tried to understand it before that was fighting a futile battle. I mean, they had to be. Now, let's consider what Daniel is doing in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel. Understanding Scripture is almost impossible without understanding the context which something is in. Grasp, grasping where it's headed. Now, you can get technical about a word here and there, and sometimes they can change the meaning somewhat, as we shall see here in a little bit. But the overall context is important to understanding anything. Now, what was Daniel doing? Chapter 9 of Daniel, he had read Jeremiah, and he understood that after 70 years, the captivity of the Jews, after the destruction of Israel 70 years prior, would be lifted, that they would be given opportunity to go back and build Jerusalem, to build a temple, and all those things that happened in Ezra and Nehemiah. So he understood by reading the books that 70 years would be accomplished in that desolation and captivity, and that after 70 years, not immediately, but shortly after that 70 years, God would turn it around. That was obvious to him from what he had read in Jeremiah about it saying, when you turn to me with your whole heart, after it quotes uh, the 70 years, that you will then find me. Okay? I set my face to the eternal God to seek by prayer, supplication, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. In other words, I think he was seeking God pretty seriously here. When you get out the sackcloth and the ashes and you fast and pray and supplicate God, you're fairly serious. I prayed to, to the Lord my God, verse 4, and made my confession and said, O eternal, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. He goes back and begins to quote from, or paraphrase from, the Ten Commandments. Because he knew that was the basis of righteousness. And it is an end-time book, and it is still the basis of righteousness then. Whether you summarize it or write it all out in Ten Commandments, it is all valid as it was then. We have sinned, committed iniquity. Sin is the breaking of the law, and have done wickedly, and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from your judgments. We haven't hearkened to the, your servants, the prophets. They wouldn't listen to Jeremiah, uh, the last one sent before they went into desolation. And they spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. And then he appeals to God's righteousness. It belongs to you, but we are confused of faith. 
as at this day. Now, the church has gone through a very similar thing. We have been in the clutches of Babylon for now shortly past 70 years. And I believe that we are now coming across information which is, re- is allowing us to be released from those clutches, move away from them, and become separate from Babylon. Uh, none of us have completed that yet, but we're working in that direction. Okay. And you, you scattered us in all directions, he said. Verse 8, O eternal to us belong confusion of faces, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Now that's what the whole church needs to be focusing on right now, is that the reason, as expounded here by Daniel and in his prayer, that we as a church have been scattered is because of our apathetic Laodicean, mediocre, lukewarm approach to God and our disobedience to his laws and commands. So he has scattered the church to the winds. Most of the church is not in the mood of saying we have sinned. Most of the church is in the mood of saying everybody sinned but us because we're the Philadelphians. And when everyone takes that approach, no one repents because they don't take it personally. Verse 11, yes, all Israel have transgressed your law, the whole church, not just those dirty Laodiceans, even by departing that they might not obey your voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, a servant of God, because we have sinned against him. Now if you go back to the blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy, uh, you will find a passage back there, which I read recently, which says these are things that will befall you in the latter days. They were not just a promise of cursing then and the desolation of Jerusalem at that time of Jeremiah, but it was also a prophecy for the latter days. So we find ourselves having been scattered. Well, if God has scattered us, and it looks pretty apparent that he has, then it had to be for the reasons stated. It wasn't for some other reason that God did this, or let the devil do it, or however you want to phrase it. It was because of our sins. Those are the reasons God lists that he will scatter his people. There are none other. So it has to apply to us, right? Verse 12, and he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges that judged us by bringing upon us a great evil. So he refers back to Moses and says that the curse put on Israel then is on us because of our sins. And the very fact that it's recorded in a book, sealed to the end, means that it has to be addressed to those who are at the end. Why have a message sealed up till the end if it applies 2,000 or 1,000 years before? doesn't make any sense. The only reason you would have somebody understand it at the end was because it applied to them. Okay, that makes sense? 
Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the eternal our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Now, I'll tell you right up front, if we understand this prophecy in this chapter, indeed, if we understand all the prophecies of the book of Daniel, We can put ourselves on a pedestal and say, hey, we understand Daniel. And it will do us no good unless we repent of our sins. That is the bottom line. I don't care where you go or what you do. If we turn to God and turn from our wicked ways, then God will bless us. Otherwise, having knowledge or understanding prophecy does us no good, whatever. <laughs> you know, if you understand exactly what's going to happen to you, and maybe even understand when it's going to happen, it doesn't do you any good unless you can avoid it. So with the understanding, <clears throat> we also have to take the steps that would help us avoid the evil things that are coming. If we can do that, then prophecy and knowledge does us some good. Sometimes it's better not to know what's coming and just have it come upon you. I would rather if someone planned to shoot me, for instance, to use a simple analogy, that they would come at me from behind and place it just right and I would never even hear the shot if it was going to happen regardless. I would far prefer that than someone coming from 200 yards over there pointing it at me and pointing it the whole time and walking slowly and increasing the length of my agony. Unless there's a way to avoid it, it's better if it slip up on you. It's better not to understand prophecy. The only way it's better to understand prophecy is if you also understand how you might not be a part of that evil prophecy. Then it does you some good. So let's understand where prophecy stands in the plan of God. They'll all be fulfilled, but where will we be? That's the only question that remains, really. <clears throat> so, the point Daniel is making is that we need to turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, has the eternal watched upon the evil and brought it upon us? For the Lord our righteous is in all his, is righteous in all his works, which he does, for he obeyed not his voice. You know, we're not in denial anymore, are we, brethren? We recognize that this came on us, and we take personal responsibility. It doesn't do me any good to talk about all those bad ministers out there. The only good that comes is if this bad one changes and becomes what he ought to be. That's all that matters. I can't change all those bad guys out there. I can only change this one bad guy. It's the only one I can fix. And now, O Lord, our God, that have brought your people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have gotten you renowned, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Get rid of the denial. Accept the fact we've sinned. Do something about it. <clears throat> then he begins to make a plea, a prayer, a supplication for deliverance. 
Okay? This is critical to understanding the 70 weeks prophecy. O Eternal, according to all your righteousness, I beseech you, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are become a reproach to all that are about us. The church at the end is going to be a reproach to all about it. We're not known by everyone yet. The church isn't, but it will be. We've not reached quite that point. We've sinned. We need to be repenting. But we're going to be hated of all nations. Matthew 24 makes very clear. And all peoples. So we can begin to understand perhaps where we're headed, what is going to transpire, and know that this prayer will be our prayer. Now we're already scattered, so it's already partly our prayer. And we certainly have sinned, so it's partly our prayer but we're not yet quite hated of all peoples. But just you wait. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. Now we have read various places in the prophecies that say God has turned his face from us, and that he will again turn and shine his face upon us at the end. And we have clearly seen in those scriptures that it's talking about the end-time church. And lo and behold, we find the same phrase used by Daniel the prophet for the end-time church. His prayer is about his desolate sanctuary, and the church is a pretty desolate sanctuary today. Much sin has occurred, much scattering has occurred. There's nothing much left. Okay? So this is a now prophecy. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and behold our desolations and scattering and so on. And the city, which is called by your name. Remember that phrase. We're going to read it again in Isaiah in a little bit. For we do not present our supplications before you for our righteousness, we can't go before God, can we? I certainly can't, and say, God, I am so righteous, and I so deserve your blessing. Nah, doesn't fit, won't work, sorry. Pharisees tried that, didn't work. He said, I really prefer somebody that will hang their head and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the attitude we should have. no time for anybody to brag when we're in this condition as a church. <clears throat> we don't do this for our righteousness, but for your great mercies. For his mercy endures forever. O eternal, hear. O eternal, forgive. O eternal, hearken and do. Do something for us. Help us. Not because we're righteous, but because you're God and you're merciful. Beautiful prayer. Right attitude. Defer not for your own sake. I mean, we're called by your name, aren't we? And, and your name is involved with us. He appeals to that. Oh, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Church has to be the church of God, 
not Methodist, not Baptist, not Roman Catholic, but the Church of God. And perhaps of the great God. So that there's no mistaking. Now, we have firmly in mind what Daniel was asking in this prayer. Now we're going to see that the 70 weeks prophecy is the answer to this particular prayer. It will answer all the things that Daniel has just prayed about. Notice, verse 21, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, one of the archangels, whom I had seen, or the cherubs that cover, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly. God told him, hurry up and get down there and talk to Daniel. Touched me about the time of the evening oblation or the afternoon sacrifice. <clears throat> and he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give you skill and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the commandment came forth. He says, when you began to fast and to pray and to look to God and to ask him for an answer, the commandment came forth. God told me, you get on down there and talk to Daniel. Okay? This is a direct answer to that prayer. Any other explanation is void. It has to have to do with this prayer and the answer to those specific things that Daniel prayed about. At the beginning of your supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. So, what he imparts here is the answer to the above questions. With that understanding... When we start to examine it, I think we can compare some other scriptures with this, and I think we can have a clear meaning of what the 70 weeks prophecy is all about. Okay? 70 weeks are determined upon your people. Daniel's people in the end time. This is a 70-week prophecy about the end time people of Daniel. Now, Daniel is going to stand when? with us. We will not precede Daniel, but we'll be resurrected at the same time he is. So he's part of the first fruits, we would be part of the first fruits. So we are the people of Daniel, in that sense, entirely. And this is an end time book that cannot be understood until the end time. And he even tells him back here, um, in chapter 8, where he's talking again about the abomination of desolation, which is also in the prophecy in Daniel 9, in verse 17. <clears throat> For at the time of the end shall be the vision. So, undoubtedly, this is talking about God's people at the end. It isn't talking about a bunch of Arabs somewhere. It isn't talking about anybody but God's people. 
So this prophecy must be understood in the context of an answer to prayer of God's people. Can't be anything else. Stated clearly. Seventy weeks are determined upon your people and upon your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most High. Now, those who have attempted to explain this prophecy uh, have had difficulties. I looked up the Most Holy this morning in Strong's, and those words, that word, Most Holy, is not even in the original Hebrew text. It said it was simply added because the translators thought it would make it clear. It isn't there. You can strike it out. doesn't belong there at all. Check Strong's. It'll have number 9999. Anytime you see 9999 in Strong's, it means this is a word that isn't in the original text, but we added it because we thought it would be a good idea. In other words, we have our own interpretation, and we think that adding these words to it will make our interpretation clearer and more understandable. Wrong. doesn't always do that, because remember, these people <clears throat> don't know God. They don't know his word. They don't know the meaning of it. They don't know who his church is. They don't know who his true people are. How can a Protestant commentator who thinks the Jews or God's people ever come up with the right explanation where they don't understand God's true church, who the spiritual Jews are at the end. I mean, to understand Scripture, you have to understand who spiritual Israel is, because that's to whom it is written. In other words, they can't know, they can't understand. Now, I've heard it said in the church over the years that this has to have to do with the return of Christ because not until he comes will transgression be finished or an end or a uh, sealing up of sin or to make reconciliation for iniquity. What does that mean? Wipe away sin, right? Reconciliation for iniquity. The sin won't be wiped away till then. And, in, and bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, surely everlasting righteousness cannot occur until Christ returns. I beg to differ. There are people in Hebrews 11 <coughs> who have had their sins forgiven, who when they are resident, they're not sinning right now. David's not, and Abraham's not, and Sarah's not, and none of those folks are sinning. And they will never sin again, will they? Because when Christ returns and they're resurrected to eternity and immortal life and put on incorruption, they will never sin again. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all those people in Hebrews 11 have already entered into everlasting righteousness. They will never sin again. And Christ returning is not the pivot upon which everlasting righteousness necessarily is based. 
because it's very clear that there will be a rebellion at the end of the millennium. So just saying these things will be accomplished when Christ returns are not necessarily valid because there will be sin after he returns. So his return does not wipe out sin forever and bring in everlasting righteousness in that context. I'm going to show you that grace and mercy and forgiveness are going to be given to an end-time people and never, ever be removed again from them. That we will come under God's grace and remain under it at a certain point in time, and that it will remain so until we are changed. That's a very encouraging thought. But now can you back it up? We shall see. All right. Let's go there and do that before we move on here. I want to go back to Isaiah. Well, no, first, before going there, let me thumb back very quickly again to Zechariah. Let's go to Zechariah 3. Understand that the way the book of Zechariah is laid out, that... uh, Joshua is introduced here first after the book of Haggai. <clears throat> Zechariah comes right out of the middle of that. And Joshua is, is, has a work to do, apparently, before he and Zerubbabel are introduced together in chapter 4. But down in here, let's see, down in verse 9, he says the seven eyes on the one stone, Christ being the stone, the seven eyes of the churches will be put before Joshua. In the end of the verse, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. There is a day in which those people who are following God and are faithful members of his church will have their iniquity forgiven in one day. It is tantamount to God turning his face back to us as Daniel asked for, and in that day our sin is removed as a cloud, and will no longer be accounted to us. In other words, for those who are in this category, when that day comes, the curse will be lifted. The not being able to look at us because of our sin will be removed. Now, will you completely be transformed that day? Or... Will God say, I'm removing the curse and I'm applying the sacrifice of my son henceforward for this people and they will be in my grace, their sin removed in that one day. Now remember that this is within the context of the beginning of the work of the Latter-day Church and of the two witnesses. It's not in the millennium. It's when Joshua is introduced And later on in the next chapter, Zerubbabel is introduced. So this happens then before Zerubbabel comes on the scene. Okay? Or at least in a formal or uh, way to do the work. I think he's alive today, but he's not prepared to do the work today. Not on the scene as yet. But that forgiveness and that removal of iniquity will be in one day. That's the point I want to make because it fits 
with Daniel 9 and what we just read. Iniquity restrained, gone away, forgiveness offered. So with that one in mind, let's go back to Isaiah. Now we went through the whole book of Isaiah, uh, partly during the feast last year and thereafter. So this should be fairly familiar, and I've even gone back to it uh, more recently. And I need to go to the same section because this chap- these chapters from Isaiah 40 through 55 are so very, very important to you and me today. They are a direct prophecy of end-time events that will occur with God's church right at the end in the beginning or beginnings of the establishment of the latter temple, which has to come under Zerubbabel and Joshua and those whom God stirs to come and build it. This is the prophecy, and it starts with the comfort ye, comfort ye my people in Isaiah 40, which we went over just a few days ago, and a voice crying in the wilderness that a straight path needs to be made. And God's glory is going to be shortly there hereafter revealed and all flesh shall see it together. So God is going to make his statement. We heard about it in the sermonette actually in in Zechariah 2 about Christ standing up to do his work, coming out of his habitation to do that and to come and dwell with people. Now, that is when we can use the word for Christ, Emmanuel, and do it in the fullness of its meaning, God with us. Today, it is still somewhat a prayer. But he said in Matthew 1, that you shall call his name Jesus, or Joshua, Yahshua, but they will call his name Emmanuel. So the day is coming very shortly when God is salvation. is not our watchword, but God with us is. And I think it's good that we be getting used to using that because I think the day is coming very shortly when it will be understood in its fullness. Okay, so we understand then that God is going to establish his church in the desert, 4119, planting the seven trees or seven churches in the wilderness in the desert. And talks about their latter end, verse 22, just below that, and how he's raised up one from the north, born in the north, north, and will come from the east, verse 25. And then the, who's declared this? Who, who would know it? But this man who is going to come from the east is righteous. Uh, there's none that hears your words. The first shall say, I'm in verse 27 of 41, the first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them. So someone has to say what is going to happen with them, the two. And I will give Jerusalem one that brings good tidings. I'll send somebody to tell you this good news. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor, that when I asked of them could answer a word. So God says, I have to give somebody this information and send it to you so that he can tell the story about them. Okay? And then we go down to see that he delights in his messengers, and he's going to do some new things in verse 9 of 42. He'll go forth as a mighty man in verse 13. Uh, I have long time held my peace, verse 14. I have been still and refrained myself. Now will I cry like a travailing woman and destroy and devour. Then he says that his servant in verse 19 is blind and deaf at the moment, but he is righteous 
verse 21, but his ears and eyes will open, and then he will be truly the servant of God and do what God wants done. Then he talks about God's people not fearing, that they will be his witnesses, that he is God. Then we go to chapter 44 and 45, in which he introduces Cyrus and says that there will come a man who is not converted, but that God will lead him through the difficult things that are necessary, uh, history, uh, hidden things, and reveal to that man his hidden riches and the treasures of darkness. And that that man will say, verse 28 of chapter 44, to Jerusalem you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now, I believe that Zerubbabel has laid the foundation of the spiritual temple and is presently blind and deaf, but will have his eyes and ears opened and will finish the work as Zechariah 4 says he must do. Your hands have laid the foundation. You will finish it. So he will be on the scene and he will be Zerubbabel. So that is the spiritual temple. But now I'm beginning to believe that this unconverted human being that God uses to ferret out and understand the hidden secrets of God uh, has to do with a physical temple. Not by the Jews, but by the people of God. It's to his people Israel. To Jacob my servant and Israel my elect, he says. So, and the purpose of this, verse 6, is that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the eternal and there is none else. God is going to make it plain that he's God. Now all we have to do is go back from this verse and go to Ezra and see that what Cyrus provided was the wherewithal to build the temple and he provided the t temple vessels, truly the riches of God, uh, to those Jews to build that temple. Haggai and Zechariah bring it forward to an end-time prophecy about the temple having to be built in the end. So I am coming to believe that not only do we have to have a latter temple spiritually, but we also must build a physical temple. And that Jerusalem, which is now desolate, Jeremiah 9 and 11, and the den of dragons or jackals, must be restored and rebuilt here at the end, physically. And it has to be a different one than the one in the Middle East, which still exists. doesn't need built at this point. And it must be in its original place. Now, that's a review of what we said the other day. But I want you to, to look forward now from here to chapter 55. And you can study it in more detail later. But I want to just give a thumbnail sketch of the, con the content of these, just a, a, the briefest of outlines. Once you leave chapter 45, where God shows that he is God and is going to make it known to the whole world, he talks about in chapter 46, Baal, or Bel, bows down, Nebo, stoops, their idols, and so on. These were the major gods of Babylon. So the modern Babylon is going to have its gods knocked down. It's going to come to an end. God says in verse 10 that his counsel will stand and he will do all his pleasure against Babylon. And in verse 13, at the end of it, it says, I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. 
Well, salvation is not coming to anyone except the 144,000 before the millennium or the great white throne judgment. So he's talking about his end-time church and those who are already dead in Christ who are waiting for the resurrection. And then chapter 47 is a prophecy directly about the virgin daughter of Babylon and how Babylon is going to be destroyed. So we have Cyrus introduced, the treasures will be revealed to him, and God will make known who he is. Then we have the fall of Babylon coming in the immediate context right afterward, chapter 47. Then he begins to give instruction to his people, chapter 48. Hear you this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and to come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the eternal and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. We have an apostate Laodicean church today which calls itself by the name of God, but doesn't do it in righteousness. We're not worshiping God in the way that he wants to be worshiped. And there is still far too much lukewarmness. It's hard to buy a conversation in a lot of places about God. And that does not uh, let us off the hook either. Because sometimes we don't have our minds the way they need to be on God. So I'm not accusing anybody else but us here. Let's understand that. I can't do anything about anybody but me, nor can you about anybody but you. And if we don't take personal responsibility for the problems in the church today, they will never get solved. Verse 4, because I knew that you were obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your brow is brass. And he talks about his called ones in verse 11. He says also in verse 10, Behold, I have refined you, but not with silver. I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. We as a church have been going through a really tough time. It's in the furnace of affliction. It's going to change. We're going to see that here in a moment. <clears throat> says he'll do his pleasure on Babylon, verse 14. Then verse 20, but verse 20 says, Get out of Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans. With a voice of singing, declare you, tell this, utter it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. So, we find that a warning has to be given. A witness of God's people has to be made. Babylon has to be destroyed. And we better get ourselves away from it as fast and as far as we can. Then he says in chapter 9, Listen, O coastlines, to me, and hearken, you people, from afar. The Eternal has called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother, as he made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand as he hid me, and made me a polished shaft in his quiver as he hid me. Said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So God knew Israel from the time he started it, from the time it was born, and he knows the end-time Israelites, the physical ones, who will depart to every god but God, become a godless people. And out of that, there will be some people who will be called and turned to God, but they in turn will become lukewarm. And they all slumbered and slept. All! Not everybody but my group. All slumbered and slept. 
No one is left out. All seven churches are told you must overcome. Even if you say, I am the Philadelphian church and all you others are Laodicea, you still can't get out of overcoming. People will say, well, we're the Philadelphians and we really don't have any problems. God has set before us an open door. It can't be shut. Well, maybe that church is in some ways better off than some others that are listed there in Revelation 2 and 3. However, if God tells Philadelphia to overcome, then Philadelphia must also have sins and problems. They may not be enumerated, but they're there. What do you have to overcome if there's nothing wrong with you? So even those who claim to be the only Philadelphians, they still have something wrong with them and must overcome in order to enter the kingdom of God. So no one gets off the hook. People try to let themselves off the hook, but boy, that's dangerous business. When you're talking to God who is sinless and tells us to come to have the very mind of Christ and to walk as he walked, and we fall anywhere short of that, we must overcome. Verse 6, and he said, It is a light thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserve of Israel. I will also give you for a light to the Gentiles. So the work of the two witnesses is first to the church, providing oil for the church, building the temple, getting Jerusalem started and rebuilt, and then going as a light to the Gentiles and finally as a warning to the Gentiles. Verse 14 of 49, But Zion said, the eternal has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Sometimes we feel dejected. Sometimes we feel like, well, where is God? And we feel the aloneness that comes with him saying, I can't look at you because of your sins. And he's turned his face from us. That's very clear in the scriptures. So we could get dejected and get discouraged, couldn't we, pretty easily. And think, man, is it ever going to turn around? I'm going to tell you before I'm done today, and I guess I better hurry, which day it will turn around. I'm going to give you a calendar date, but I'm going to tell you the event that will occur the day that the turnaround comes and God shines his face on us as Daniel prayed for. So when God says, Zion says, the Lord's forsaken me, and God must have just forgotten me out here, Here's what he has to say about that. Can a woman forget her sucking child? That she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? God forgetting us out here would be tantamount to you women forgetting your nursing baby. Can't be done. Can't be done. Yes, they may forget, yet will I not forget you. A woman will forget her nursing baby, he says, before I forget you. Don't think that's going to happen. Behold, I've graven you upon the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. But God has written our names in his hand. What do people do when they want to remember something? Write it in their hand. 
very common. No, no paper? Write it here. Honey, don't forget the milk and bananas. Write it on the back of your hand. That's how God looks at it. Verse 18, lift up your eyes round about and behold, all these gather themselves together and come to you. God is going to send his remnant, stir them up to come from all over the world. All these gather themselves together and come to you. As I live, says the eternal, you shall surely clothe you with them all as with an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. God is going to begin to assemble his bride at the end time. Going to bring them together. Man doesn't need to do that. Haggai makes it very clear that God says, I will stir the people to come. Zechariah 6 says, They will come from afar. God will stir them to come and build in the temple. So God doesn't have the ministry running around trying to assemble God's people from out of the splintered church. How could man know which are the faithful? God will know, and he will stir the ones he wants to come. He makes that part of it very simple. For your waste place, or your waste in your desolate places in the land of your destruction shall even now be too narrow by reason of the inhabitants, and they that swallowed you up shall be far away. Cotches are gone, Raiders gone, Stavernides is gone. They're not around to bother us anymore. God will pull us together. The children which you shall have after you have lost the other shall say again in your ears, The place is too straight for me. Give place to me that I may dwell. So the children of God that have departed from the church, God is going to replace with his faithful remnant. Verse 21, then you shall say in your heart, who has begotten me these, seeing I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and remaining and removing to and fro? Where are all these people coming from? You know, we look around today and people sort of sift through the churches. They come in the front door, out the back door, in the front door, out the back door. Nothing much changes overall in numbers. Some people try to put up that they are growing very, very rapidly. They're not. They're playing with statistics if they're doing that. Thus says the eternal God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people. Verse 25, end of it, I will save your children. End of verse 26, All flesh shall know that I, the eternal, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So God is going to stir his people to come together in the whole world. Not like it is today where they don't hardly know the church anymore. The whole world is going to know. It's going to take something incredible for them to see that. Just because we keep Saturday or the Feast of Tabernacles doesn't make the whole world know us and hate us. It's got to be something a lot bigger than that. All right, he goes on down. Uh, chapter 51, it talks about God waking up and putting on his strength, the arm of the Lord, chapter 51, verse 9. We heard that in the sermonette, that Christ is going to be raised up and go about his work and finish it. And we're calling upon him, please, get on with this work. Let's, let's have it done. Let's get on with it. We're tired of waiting. We're frustrated. We're impatient. We don't have enough of your spirit 
to entrust you and have faith in you that you know exactly what you're doing, but we're impatient. Oops. Sorry. Didn't mean to bring that up, did I? Yeah, I guess it did. We've got to learn to trust God. Wait for Him to know what He's to know what He is doing. All right, let's go to chapter 52. He talks to us about waking up here now. Well, wait a minute. Let's let's go back. Verse 18. He tells Jerusalem to wake up, that we've drunk at the hand of the Eternal and the cup of His fury, and there's none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. When Herbert Armstrong died, there became a dearth of leadership in the church. There have been various ones that have raised themselves up and called themselves the leader or the apostle or the witness or the evangelist or whatever term they've taken. But God says, none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. God is going to have to appoint the end-time leadership. And those who think they can go on and preach the gospel and finish Herbert Armstrong's work don't believe Herbert Armstrong when he said, my work is finished, get the church ready. Instead, they're going out trying to call a great calling. God is not listening because he's not calling a great calling. This is a period of time when he is scattering and cursing the church for its Laodiceanism. And he has not raised up anybody. But he is going to raise up one to tell the story and then the two are going to come on the scene. But he gives us some encouragement in verse 21. Therefore hear now this, you afflicted and drunken, but not with wine. We're, we're spiritually drunk. We don't know what we're, what does a drunk do? They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're going about. They get confused. They get tangled foot. Uh, they can't stand up. And that's where the church is today. Pursuing false goals, and not very well at that, staggering about. Thus says the eternal your Lord uh, God, verse 22, and your God that pleads the cause of his people, I have taken out of your hand the hand of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no more drink it again. When God removes his fury from this scattering, those who are faithful will never again, remember those words, never again, have the fury of God upon them. But I will put into the hand of them that afflict it into the hand of them that afflict you, which have said to your soul, Bow down that we may go over. And you have laid your body as the ground and as a street to them that went over. We've had the Babylonians walking all over us. And God says that's not going to be anymore. Awake, wake up, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, your wedding attire. O Jerusalem, the holy city, speaking of the church but perhaps also even a physical Jerusalem. For henceforth there shall come no more to you the uncircumcised and the unclean. The unclean are going to be excluded. Only those who are clean before God will be acceptable. That's why he puts a measuring rod, a plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel to measure the uprightness and the spirituality of those who do come. Didn't we see that in Ezra? They did not accept everybody who came to work in the temple, but only those who had the proper pedigree. That was a physical pedigree, but this is a spiritual pedigree. And only those qualified will come. Now, he hearkens back to chapter 40 here in verse 7. Brings it forward. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, 
that publishes peace, or talks about the peace that is to come, Haggai 2.9, in this place, the latter temple, will I bring peace. That never happened in Worldwide. It never had peace. There were always evangelists and various ones and area coordinators and those fomenting rebellion against Pasadena. There were always local problems. Never did we have truly peace in the church, nor do we today. They keep splitting, they keep dividing, this little group of ministers will leave, that little group of ministers will leave, doesn't matter which organization it is. We've had our losses here, let's not exclude ourselves. Never want to. We've had people in the front door, out the back door, just like everybody else has. That's going to stop. All right. The publishes peace that brings good tidings of good, the publishes salvation that says to Zion, your God reigns. There is an eternal, true God who really is in charge and will make all these prophecies come to pass. Now, thy watchmen, plural, shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye. They'll agree, walk together, and it even tells us when. When the Eternal shall bring again Zion, or turn it around, or turn his face back toward the church. That is when they will see eye to eye. Not before. Won't happen. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of the church. I'm putting in. For the Eternal is comforted as his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Who will he redeem? Only the faithful at the end time. The rest of the church, I mean the rest of the world isn't included. The Eternal has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. Now, isn't that what he says he's going to do, beginning back there in Isaiah 44 and 45 about Cyrus? That he will uncover the hidden riches of God. I think it includes the temple vessels, because that's what the original Cyrus did. And it will make the whole world know where God's people are. Those archaeologists in the Middle East are not going to find the Holy Grail or the temple vessels, or the tabernacle of God, the records of God, or the things of Israel. They will not find them. God has reserved that for one Cyrus, he calls at the end, for the benefit of his church, which is faithful. That is Scripture. That's not my thought, that is Scripture. Who Cyrus is and who the true people of God are are the only questions remaining. Now, when God turns it around, brings the two witnesses together finally, at the time that the turnaround occurs, that's critical to understanding Daniel 9 now. All ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That has not occurred yet, has it? No. Depart you, depart you, go you out from here, touch no unclean thing. Haggai makes it clear the ministry needs to make a difference between the clean and the unclean. Go ye out of the midst of her, be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. I don't think that's just spiritual vessels. I've come to see an understanding about a Cyrus that will appear that that also has to include those physical vessels of God. Now Israel, I mean Jerusalem today, he says, is a den of dragons and no inhabitants there. 
because of sin. Do you think for a moment that God is going to turn that site of Jerusalem and the vessels of his temple, his holy vessels, over to a filthy, unclean people? I don't think so. The reason he cursed it and made it desolate in the first place was because of sin. So whomever he turns this over to has to be clean. That's all there is to it. Now, you take any group of people in the Church of God today, whatever organization they're in, and I don't think you could say they are clean and sinless and capable of bearing the vessels of God. So how is that going to come about? You shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the eternal God will go before you, and God of Israel will be your rear guard. The flight to a place of safety is in great haste. Don't even go back to your house. This is talking about a different movement of people and people coming out of Babylon and being having been stirred to come and work in the temple of God. It's not going to be a momentous thing where you have to really, really hurry, but they will begin to gather. They'll come from far. And God will protect them as they go about it. Then he talks about, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. And Zerubbabel is a type of Christ. Just as Moses and Elijah were, just as John the Baptist was. Chapter 53, Who's believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Who is it? Where will it be? That the report given will be believed, and who will bring it? Then it talks about Christ here, and all that he did for us. And it gives us, I would say, somewhat a Passover setting. So some of these events may transpire right around Passover. I didn't say which year. On the other hand, it might not have that bearing. It could be that it's saying that those who do this thing that we're reading about here will have to have Christ as their Savior and forgiver and remover of iniquity. Otherwise, this can't happen. So it might only have to do with him as our Savior, not with the Passover season. But it sure seems to be stuck in here like that, doesn't it? So perhaps it has some bearing on the timing as well. I'm not going to read chapter 53. It's all about Christ, and we read it at the Passover time every year. But once he is truly interjected into this story that we've been summarizing here, there is an immediate result. Chapter 54. Sing, O barren that did not bear, church that was scattered and ineffectual and spittle upon the world. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you that did not travail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, says the Eternal. God is going to take that which was rejected, turned his face from, and make it fruitful and beautiful and plentiful. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of your habitation. Spare not, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. You're going to have to have a bigger tent. For you shall break forth on the right and on the left, 
and your seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Jeremiah 9.11 says the cities of Judah are desolate and Jerusalem is desolate in a den of dragons. That has to change. People are going to come. They're going to be towns without walls, protected by God, who will obey God and build a temple and Jerusalem. Okay? For your maker, he says, don't fear or be ashamed, verse 4. Verse 5, your maker is your husband. The eternal of hosts is his name, and your redeemer, O holy, the Holy One of Israel. So it's talking about Christ redeeming his end-time people, right? For the eternal has called you as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and the wife of youth when you were refused. God turned from us. Now notice this, verse 7. For a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercy will I gather you. In a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment. What did Daniel pray? Cleanse your sanctuary, turn your face to your end-time people. God is telling us here that after someone gives the message, Cyrus will appear, Babylon will fall, God will begin to show his people who they are, and encourages them not to give up. And then he says, forsake iniquity, be clean that bear my vessels, look to Christ your Savior, and then suddenly it will change and he will turn his face to us. We read in Zechariah how it will happen during the time that Joshua is there, and it will happen in one day. One day! Okay? Remember that. Then he talks about all the blessings that will come. And then he says, in the verse 8, But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Eternal, your Redeemer. In other words, once I turn my face back, it will never turn away ever again. Now isn't that the ever and the so on that we see in Daniel 9? Doesn't that sound like what we read in Daniel 9? We'll go back and review it here in just a moment after seeing this. For this is as the waters of Noah to me. Verse 10, For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. In other words, the earth would completely change before my word would not be fulfilled. But my kindness shall not depart from you, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, says the Eternal that has mercy on you. It'll never again be removed from his faithful who are stirred to come and build his latter temple. O you afflicted, tossed with tempest and not comforted, I'm going to lay your foundation with precious things. And great shall be the peace of your children, verse 13. God is going to bless even our children. That should be very hopeful there. In righteousness shall you be established. It talks about the establishment of righteousness in Daniel 9, doesn't it? And right in the middle of that 70 weeks prophecy. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall never come near you. But they will gather themselves together, and whosoever shall gather together against you shall fall for your sake. Not millennial yet. There will still people be gathering against God's people, but they will fall. This isn't millennial. Behold, I have created the smith that blows the coals in the fire and that brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the waster to destroy. All right, in this chapter, he says, once it turns around and he turns his face to us, 
He will bring in everlasting righteousness. He will show mercy thereafter, and that he will never remove peace from us again. And then he says, the waster is still coming to destroy, but he won't be able to get us if we're the righteous. Okay? What he's saying in this chapter is exactly what Gabriel told Daniel in chapter 9. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. There won't be any weapons formed during the millennium, but they will be before that. And every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the eternal, and their righteousness is of me, says the eternal. Once it turns, it won't be our righteousness. It'll be the righteousness of God that he pronounces upon his people and wipes away their sin in the blood of our Savior. And it will never, ever be taken away. Those who come under this in the end time are going to be in the kingdom of God. It will never, ever be taken away from them. Now, maybe individuals could fail, but not the people of God. All right, let's go back now to Daniel. I could go on here, but I think that's enough to show that that story in Isaiah underlines, capitalizes, and puts in italics what Gabriel told Daniel. Remember, this is an answer to Daniel's prayer for his sanctuary being made cleansed, or cleansing the sanctuary and bringing in righteousness to his people through his mercy. All right, let's go back to Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon your people and upon your holy city to finish transgression. God says he's going to remove our sin in one day. That's the end of us being called transgressors. We will again come under the grace and favor of God, not the curse for disobedience. In other words, his whole attitude is going to change from one of turning his face away for a little moment and turn it back and shine upon us. He summarizes it here, but all those things we read in Isaiah are the same things. To restrain sin instead of make an end of sin is a better translation here. You can check it out. To restrain sin, God is going to turn to his people and what he will do is restrain sin so that it will not be profligate and all around us and in us and through us. And to make reconciliation for iniquity. He says, I will blot out your sin in one day. Isn't that the same thing as reconciliation for iniquity? And to bring in everlasting righteousness. He says it will be his righteousness and it will never depart again. So even though the kingdom of God is not yet here, this whole prophecy ends down here a few verses later in the abomination of desolation being set up. That's 1260 days before Christ returns, and this prophecy is finished at that point. So it cannot be referring to Christ returning. It is a prophecy that finishes itself at the abomination of desolation. So everything we're reading here in verse 24 
has to occur before the abomination of desolation and the flight to safety occurs. Let's get the timing here that is self-explanatory. All these events are something that come before the abomination of desolation. Okay? And to seal up the vision, and it should say the prophet, not the prophecy, but the prophet. God is going to take one from the north who will come from the east. He is the prophet that God sends at the end. And to anoint. Who are the two anointed ones at the end? Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses. The most holy one, or the most holy, is not even in the Hebrew. Check it out for yourself. It wasn't in Strong's as of this morning. If it's been added since, well, you know, we'll discuss that. But it wasn't in there this morning. So, to seal up the vision, to finish it up, and the prophet, and to anoint. And we know who the two anointed ones are. Christ was anointed a long time ago. It's not talking about his anointing. That, that happened a long time ago. He's resurrected and at the right hand of God. He's certainly the anointed Savior. But there are those come who are also anointed. And Songs does say that, that the word anoint in this chapter means like a king or a priest or someone of that nature who's anointed to do a certain job. And it can mean specifically Messiah. But it does not necessarily need to. Okay? And these are events before Messiah shows up. So it must be talking about anointing somebody else. Well, we know who those are, the two witnesses who oversee the end-time church. All right, now let's get the timing. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem to the anointed, not Messiah the Prince, it's not in there, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall in troublous times. This prophecy begins with the command to rebuild Jerusalem. And all these things in verse 40, I mean verse 24, about God's favor and righteousness and turning his face to us as Daniel prayed in this chapter, will occur on that day. That's when the prophecy begins. Now, there's things that have to be done. We have to know where Jerusalem is in order to build it. We have to find Osiris, or he has to find us, who also will find the secret things of God, the temple vessels, the records, everything that is needed the money, the wherewithal, to do the job. That person has to appear. We have to depart from Babylon and prepare ourselves as a bride. And when that day that the plan for Jerusalem is complete, we've got, we got to find out where it's supposed to be, got to go into the Scriptures, find out how it's to be built, what the format will be, what the size of the temple is, and how to go about it, has to be done. The preparations have to be made, the plan laid out, and then the day that the command is given to actually do what God said has to be done, you know, you can talk and talk, but if you break ground, you aren't building anything. 
You can dream all you want. But do you put the shovel in the ground? You haven't done a thing. So we have a job, and that is to find Jerusalem, because that one over there doesn't need built. It's still there. And we're part of the people of God, then this is a responsibility he has laid upon us. And we have to find out how God wants Jerusalem and the temple built and where he wants it built. And Cyrus will tell us the, temp the city must be built and the foundation of the temple must be laid. And I think this is talking of the physical one. We've got to scurry around, find out where and how and what, get the plan in place. And the day that we are told, put the shovel in the ground and start building, is a day God is going to turn his face back to us as Daniel prayed. And all these things in verse 24 are going to suddenly in one day happen. Our sin will be forgiven, given. God will pronounce his righteousness upon us, and we will never, ever be turned away from his grace and mercy again. That's the day it will happen. We wondered, when are you going to turn your face back to us? How long, O oh Lord? When is this going to happen? Daniel prayed about it. Gabriel sent him the answer, or God sent him the answer through Gabriel. And that's the day. Now, I'm out of time, so we'll have to pick this up again tomorrow, God willing, and I'll show you the rest of it and what must be done, how it will be done, and how it will culminate, and how long it will be, how long it will be, from the time that order is issued until the abomination of desolation is set and we have to flee to a place of safety. Thereby, we know how long the villages or towns without walls will exist once this event happens. Now, there's a build-up to that. There are things that have to be done in the meantime. But that is the critical issue with God, not just dreams, not just hopes, not just plans, but when will you actually begin to do what I want done? Isn't that the message we got in Haggai? You live in your homes. My temple isn't built. God isn't happy with that. So when his temple begins to be built, his happiness level is going to go way up because here are some people who will do what he says must be done. And from that day forward, their blessing will come and never again be removed. Incredible promise. That is the answer to the prayer of Daniel about the things that will befall God's people at the end. is isn't the complete story yet. We'll have to get there tomorrow. But I laid a lot of background to show you that those things in verse 24 are indeed something that Isaiah talks about. We'll go from there.